Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm not going to act like we didn't try and do this before, but John, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure, no problem. My name is John Moretta. I'm an historian and full-time history professor at Houston Community College, where I've been since uh, 1982. It's my 41st year. And um, I've written several books and articles on a variety of different subjects, U.S. history, Texas history. And the last 10 years, I focused on uh, the 1960s and student revolt and the rise of the counterculture in that decade. And my current book, I'm focusing on Austin, Texas, where there was a unique alliance between the hip counterculture and the student radicals that really did not exist anywhere outside of UT and a few other Midwestern and Southwestern universities and colleges referred to at the time as prairie power. And so hopefully uh, you'll be able to read my new book sometime in late 2023 or early 2024. Can we talk about the counterculture? Like how'd you get interested in reading about the counterculture? And when you say hip, are you talking about hippies? Or are you just talking about like the hip, cool jazz folks? No, 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 no. I'm always hesitant to use the term hippie because it really, when I, when I was interviewing a lot of hippies for my first book on the hippies, right? Some people liked it or they didn't like it because I think of it as an offensive word. Sadly, I've talked to people who've really said hippies kind of makes you seem like a, I think the before term was beatnik. Um, yes, which is bad, but I also talk to people who use it as like a badge of power, which is like, I'm a hippie man. And it's just like, okay. Right. You're right. And I think the hip counterculture, the hippies that emerged in the sixties and all the individuals I interviewed for that book and for my current book, they all said, no, we never referred to ourselves as hippies. Only if we wanted to convey a very immediate trite message of who we were. They always referred to themselves as beatniks, freaks, uh, outsiders. Outsiders. Yeah, outsiders, renegades, rebels. Rarely did any of them. And I'm even talking about the individuals I'm interviewing for my current book, interviewed for my current book. They looked upon that term as you just referenced with kind of a disdain because they did not want to project the image of the stereotype. And when, and this was one of the points I made in my first book, which I'll reinforce and reiterate in my second book, is that the media culture of the 60s really drove the image of the counterculture. It was propaganda, right? It was on purpose. Yeah, of course it was. Of course it was. And they wanted to discredit out of fear, out of loathing, for a variety of reasons, the 60s counterculture that emerged. And in my, as an historian, I see the counterculture of the 60s as the general youth revolt that emerged. To me, the counterculture is a composite, was a composite of all the various affinity, affinity groups that emerged in the 60s from SDS, New Left, Black Panthers, Jesus Freaks, to quote, 
the hippies, right? And what popular media at that time did is it lumped them all together into the hippie movement. And rarely did the, did the mass media, mainstream media of the time, differentiate between those different affinity groups. And this came, became especially true for the student radicals that emerged in these prairie power colleges, universities, Midwest, Southwest, UT, University of Oklahoma, Southern Illinois, Kansas, places like this, where in order to enhance the, the, the presence and the power of the counterculture, student radicals embraced and allied with their hip counterparts. This was especially true on the University of Texas. As Thorne Dreyer, the founder of Austin Rag, one of the best underground newspapers of the 60s, which I'm sure one of your previous guests, Abe Peck, would agree with, right? He described the Austin hip scene, counterculture scene, as Austin having the most hip politicos and the most political hippies. That's verbatim, Thorne Dreyer's words. Both in which, in which he told me personally, as well as uh, in his recollections. I wrote an article that introduced the topic of, of my current book for the Southwestern Historical Court called Hip Politicals and Political Hippies, the rise of the counterculture movement in Austin, came out in January of 2020. So if you want to get a glimpse of what I'm talking about in a kind of condensed form, take a look at that article. You can find it online, Southwestern Historical Quarterly. And um, uh, Thorne Dreyer had me on his show soon after he read that article. Uh, Rag Radio. She broadcast every Friday from Austin. Fabulous uh, show. Um, and we were talking about this. And I said, yes, this is this was unique about the Austin scene. That and 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 I found in my research, I found this also to be true at the University of Oklahoma and other quote Prairie Power schools in the Midwest, Southwest, from Texas to Minnesota where there wasn't really a very strong leftist tradition in the first place, right? Activist leftist uh, tradition in these universities. And so they found that strength in numbers for their demonstrations, for their causes, social justice causes, whether it was civil rights or anti-war protest, that they needed to include the hip counterculture. And in the process, these supposed apolitical hippies became very politicized and participated wholeheartedly, consistently in demonstrations against the war, against censorship at the university, right? Free speech at the University of Texas or Oklahoma. And they became very close. And they, and and because Texas, which is such it was, is was 
such a conservative red state. And that's because the that's because the religious aspect too as well, right? Like I would think with a lot of hardcore Christian values, oh, there's this God, hippie yes. mentality that does not fit kind of the 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 spectrum of what they're already rolling with for so long. Yes, you have a very strong in Texas ever since the fifties, uh, in in the post World War II era. Prior to that, of course, very strong evangelical fundamentalist Protestant uh, driven uh, religion. Texas. And that's still true. Still very true. And so that was an issue that drove I just have to read a fabulous article my current book by Willie Morris who was the editor of the, the Daily Texan then editor of the Texas Observer which is our liberal magazine here in Texas has been since 54 founded by Ronnie Duger, still in operation. And he became the youngest editor ever at Harper's in the early 60s. And he wrote a fabulous article I just read. He published it in 1961 for Harper's, whereby he talked about how strong the far right was already in Texas, in Houston in the early 60s of all places, not Dallas. And John Burt Society, You've heard of, of course, a very strong presence in Houston, which Willie Morris exposed in this article. Right, it's, in fact, it's titled. I think they even lump a lot of the John Birchers with people that are joined in with the KKK and things of that sort. Yeah. Yes, the article is called "Houston Super Patriots," and it's fabulous, great expose. And one of his, when he he like as you just stated, one of the forces that drove the far right still drives the far right. We refer today as Christian nationalism, right? But in, in the deep South, including Texas, you had this very strong fundamentalist evangelical uh, Protestantism that gravitated like flies to honey to these early far right organizations like the Birchers. And so when you have a rise of a counterculture in Texas, most mostly in Austin. Um, in Austin, I read wrote another article from Southwest Historical Quarterly. UT has had a very strong tradition of student activism and protest, right? Ever since really the 1930s. And the first crescendo of that activism occurred in 1944 when the Board of Regents, who were, were notoriously right-wing for the University of Texas, had been since the 20s, fired one of the most popular progressive presidents in UT history, Homer Rainey. And I've done a lot of research on Rainey. That's going to be my next book after I finish this one. And uh, very popular, massive student protest. Closed down the school for several days. And that activism carried forward after World War II into the 50s, especially with civil rights on the UT campus. And so when you look at the nascent beginnings of SDS, the new left on the UT campus, the impetus for the emergence of that chapter 
was as it was everywhere else, the civil rights movement. You look at every activist of the 60s, I don't care who you talk to, whether it was Tom Hayden, who's passed away, obviously, or any of the individuals I spoken with at UT, or even APEC, who was the editor of the Chicago Seed, right? All those guys will tell you, all those people, men and women will tell you that there never would have been an SDS, never would have been a new left in the 60s, had it not been for the inspiration, the impetus, the force of the civil rights movement, particularly within the confines of that SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, right? When those four African-American students from North Carolina, AT&T, right, sat down at that Woolworth lunch counter, February 1st, 1960, that ignited the 60s, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure most historians would agree. That single act of defiance of Jim Crow, those four young men, brave men, Shout out that lunch counter. That began the 60s. When did the counterculture start getting out of control? Um, what I mean by that is like you get people like like I agree with the counterculture. I'm glad it was there. I've noticed I, we could talk a lot about the government stuff of their infiltration onto those things, which is horrible. And I want to get to that. But sure. then you have like the weather underground, which look, I know they warned people, but that is really dangerous too. If you're exploding like a toilet or something like that. So they get lumped into the counterculture. Then there's like this mythos that I've realized, which is yes, the LSD and the drugs were a part of the whole counterculture, but it's not the whole damn counterculture. And that somehow is like what everyone thinks of when they learn about the counterculture, which is terrible because it's not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's other stuff, movements, powerful movements that were yes. infiltrated. And I'm not right or left. I'm more of a deep state believer only because I look at our agencies as deep state. I kind of go, I can tell you some acronyms, but I can't tell you exactly what they do. And when I look at COINTELPRO and see what they did, not only to, obviously they messed with KKK, but I'm saying with the Black Panther Party, you write a letter to their leader's wives saying your their husbands are sleeping around with teenage kids. I'm like, that's a gut punch. That is the lowest blow I have ever seen. And they had invaded these groups and radicalized them to try and turn in on themselves. And it's like, you can't predict if that group is going to do things bad to you, but it's that mentality that was going at the time, which I think a lot of people don't really know about unless you're reading through the documents or doing the interviews to be able precisely. to precisely. Yeah, precisely. J Edgar Hoover. Oh, wonderful guy. Ain't he? <laughs> yeah. All right. Why to this day, I look back and if any president could have gotten rid of Hoover, it was Lyndon Johnson. He was that powerful at a very precise moment in historical time in the 60s. He should have gotten rid of Hoover as quickly as possible, but he didn't. And Hoover really, to my knowledge, and I could be totally wrong, I don't know if Hoover really had the goods on Johnson. He certainly did have the goods on Kennedy and such, but, but whatever. You'll find this fascinating. I'm sure Peck and some others of, of my era know or are aware of this the sds papers the files at the university of texas at the Dolph briscoe center which is a fabulous historical center one of the best in the country <laughs> those papers 
are the accounts of the different police, FBI, and other law enforcement agents who infiltrated the STS chapter at, at UT and documented everything about those meetings. That's, that's incredible. So the SDS papers are not the papers of Thorne Dreyer or Alice Embry or Jeff Shero or even Greg Calvert, but they're the incredibly detailed uh, what recounting of these various SDS chapter meetings. And they're incredible, right? Thorne Dreyer did a wonderful expose several years ago when he revealed all this publicly through Texas Monthly, right, that called Texas Spies. And he talks about how Bert Gurdy, Austin's chief of police, had set all this up. But SDS was aware of it. They weren't stupid. So UTSDS would only say things that they knew this guy, this person was recording or taking down. But it's incredible to see how detailed these individuals' accounts of these meetings were. And I'm sure that was true at other SDS chapters as well, as well. But they these these individuals are some of the best sources on SDS activities at University of Texas. Right? It's really it's really bizarre. So so you get an idea through why were they so worried about SDS? Across the board, this is all driven by. We have had I, I had a discussion on with Thorne Dreyer, one of his radio shows about this. If you look at the the spectrum of U.S. history, especially from the eighteen nineties going forward, down to the present, and you hear this in far right rhetoric today, we, we, Americans white Americans in particular, have always had this in, in, inordinate, unrealistic fear of revolution from the left, right? And that's what SDS and other counterculture affinity groups like the Black Panthers and others, because of their rhetoric, I don't mean rhetoric in a bad sense of the Panthers or SDS or new leftists, they challenged the status quo, the American dream, right? The idea of prosperity, stability, security, they just obliterated that. And you could go back to the Wobblies, IWW, International Workers of the World, the Red Scare of the, right after World War One, right? A Mitchell Palmer during the Wilson administration, all the way through Harry Truman, for all his great liberalism, used the fear of communism to generate his Cold War, the foundation for his Cold War policy, for his Truman doctrine, right? He even accused Henry Wallace of being a, a red, FDR's former vice president. And so you instill in the American mind this incredible, unrealistic fear that revolution, the overthrow of the great bourgeois capitalist American system is going to come from the left, from the left. When 
Uh, you can't say that on YouTube. Thank you. Recent events will prove otherwise. And if you look at white terrorism in this country, it's always come from the right, not the left, except for something you mentioned a few minutes ago. You did have the weather, other, weather underground, a leftist extremist group, but they were such a small, small minute minority within the new left, within SDS, that yes, they advocated terrorism, violence, overthrow the capitalist system, but they faded. Yeah, but don't you think that the counterculture, the government's stopping the counterculture is a little bit more than just hard right extremism? I mean, digging oh, of through course it is. my dive of like the JFK stuff, what I've started to notice is like if you stop examining it from like a hard right perspective and examine it from like a threat to the capitalistic system, which is in a sense, a lot of these hippies thought that they were going against the capitalist system, this mentality that had been growing in this nation. But the government is doing everything it possibly can to protect that. I mean, the number of government projects that were going on that I, I think were on everybody. A good example is um, one you actually wrote about, the Haight-Ashbury clinics. Depending on how far you dug into that, you get MK Ultra stuff. And that's where I have a hard, like, what the hell are we talking about? You guys did what to stop the hippie movement? Does that make any sense? Operation Midnight Climax, I think it's called. It's so just evil where it's like, you're not even thinking about right or left anymore. You're thinking about what can I do to make sure I keep in power? That's such an elite mentality. That's where I have my hard line. And it's so difficult because even in today's time, that's not being taught to people. You say it and people call you a conspiracy theorist and throw their hands up. It's like, no, the government did do it, but they also destroyed so much documentation on it. Of course. Yes. I mean, if you look at 60s liberals, okay, they had a hard time dealing with the counterculture, the student revolt. LBJ, classic example. And I've gone to his library at UT, which is fabulous. And LBJ, he was the first president. Well, Kennedy did, but LBJ on a very massive scale. And then Nixon, of course, recorded virtually every phone conversation yeah. he had with anybody. And I listened to so many of those conversations. And he comes across extremely honest, open about the government, what he's doing. And his mind, because he, the great society, to him, was the apex of American liberals. And it was in many ways. LBJ saw himself as picking up, pick, picking up where FDR left off with the New Deal. Okay. Kennedy thought he was going to do that with New Frontier. We have no idea where that would have gone because of his assassination. But LBJ believed, because he was a disciple, knew FDR. FDR liked LBJ as a young uh, house or, uh, member of the house. It's so interesting that you're saying that. Cause like all through all the Kennedy people I've talked to, if you even mention LBJ, they'll like, look at you like they want to shoot you because they hate him so much. But I go, it's kind of like I had Jeff Shepard who defended Nixon and Watergate on my show. And I've changed my perspective on Nixon mostly because I Watergate gets all blamed on Nixon. And I'm not saying he should have been president at all, but I go, you're telling me none of these fucking agencies did anything that 
could have been pointed out like, hey, the FBI was wiretapping people, yet everyone only remembers Nixon. So like all the blame getting pushed on him, I go, hey, there's other agencies out there that were doing horrible stuff, too. And the fact that, CIA, they let, of course, yes. yeah. So when I look at Lyndon Johnson, one thing that I noticed about him was his Johnson treatment. That was like, that's someone that definitely could get over shit on certain people. He knew how the system worked. And I think that's like a big thing you really have to understand of why things are moved certain ways. He was a master political operator, master politician, studied it, lived it, breathed it. He was incredible. I think LBJ, not just because he's a fellow Texan, but because his vision for the country, he was sincere. He was sincere with civil rights. He was sincere with his great society. He wanted to elevate every American citizen to a standard of living that was middle class, all the same opportunities, income, etc. And he might have pulled it off, who knows, had it not been for the damn war. Vietnam destroyed Johnson, destroyed him. You've seen the, the iconic photographs of Johnson after years, the news of Tet with his hands like this. Have you seen that photograph where he's got his hands on his, he's on his desk like this? Oh, yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen it? Yeah. Classic photo. It devastated this guy. And going back to our original uh, part of the conversation, LBJ had a hard time understanding SDS, New Left. The counterculture, the hip counterculture, he dismissed as ah, spoiled, spoiled white kids, in which many, most of them were, right? But he was doing, he believed that he, he 60s liberals believed that they were doing everything they possibly could to eradicate poverty, discrimination, provide education for everyone. If you look at all the great society bills that Johnson pushed through from Civil Rights Act of 64, 65, to his uh, urban renewal programs, to Project Head Start, I tell my students, many of the grants and opportunities you have to go to college for free, thanks to Lyndon Johnson and 60s liberals, Johnsonian liberals. And they have no frame of reference for that, of course, because they're too young. But LBJ moved this country and would have moved it a lot further. So in his mind, he had a difficult time understanding the protest, not the war. That's a misnomer. By the time he announced he wasn't going to seek re-election in March of 16. He had grew his hair out and he changed up. Yeah. Yes. Oh, you do this. See, that's the benefit of not just talking about JFK stuff. I actually had Lyndon Johnson historians on here to get the other perspective that the JFK people weren't telling me. I like the balance. Like I said, I like to keep the balance. It's just, it's interesting because you do see Johnson's growth. And I love listening to those taped conversations, even though they're oh, shitty. They're hard to listen to. Some of them they are, are unlistenable. But to yeah. me, it's just interesting to hear how he talked. And I think like that's another thing. A lot of people go like he was like disgusting. He burped and all this. And I was like, to be 100 percent honest, I like this because there's not a sense of like this. Well, yeah, there's no like I'm giving you the president figure. It's like we know that they joke and they I heard Kennedy curse on tape. It was amazing to me because it's like you get to see a different side than what the public sees. And you realize, oh, shit, they're human. Of course they are. And Johnson was real. You mentioned his growing his hair long. Johnson felt so bad 
emotionally, psychologically, spiritually small s uh, because of the war and how many tens of thousands of lives, young lives he lost. And he realized it was a losing cause too late. And in the last days, last months or so of his life, he grew his hair, as you mentioned, he grew it down to his shoulders. And he would ride around his ranch, which is up, up in the hill country here, three or four hours from Houston. It's a beautiful ranch. Take a tour. He would ride around on his horse on his ranch all day long, thinking about, my God, what have I done? And he dies of a heart attack, 1973, a couple months after he <laughs> leaves office. Poor man. And I'm convinced Johnson died. That heart attack was a broken heart because he wanted, he believed he had done, wanted to do, and had done a lot for the country. But he also realized that the war killed him politically, personally, and it was wrong. He should have disengaged. Kennedy, and you've, I'm sure you've had Kennedy people on, rumor has it, historically, that Kennedy, after Dam's assassination in October of 63, which really shook Kennedy, I'm sure your Kennedy people told you this. You see the famous photo of him with his hand like this. He's on the phone. Yeah, he's irate with the CIA because that wasn't supposed to happen. Kennedy rumor has it, was contemplating seriously pulling us out yeah. of Vietnam. And we don't know what he, if he would have done that or not. LBJ believed, now, in fairness to LBJ, remember, LBJ was never a foreign policy president wonk like some others we've had, right? Hillary Clinton was a foreign policy wonk, not president, individual, right? Um, Johnson said, okay, we have this war. Yes, I'm an anti-communist. I believe in the domino theory, which was stupid. Um, and all this, but I'm not going to deal with this war. I've hired you, Dean Rusk, Walt Rostow. I've hired you, my wise man, to deal with this war. I want to focus on a great society. And so McNamara, really the architect of that war, the escalation, kept telling LBJ, yes, we could win this war. And McNamara is basing his advice to Johnson from what he's hearing from Westmoreland. And Westmoreland, as you know, it's been revealed, was a huge liar. The big lie about Vietnam started with, with, with as far as I'm concerned, with Westmoreland. To McNamara, who's crunching numbers all the time, right? Foreign policy cleometrician. And then tells Johnson, yeah, Mr. President, just a few thousand more troops. General Westmoreland says there's light at the end of the tunnel. We're going to crush this, these commies. It's going to be over. Right? Now, Johnson lied about Tonkin Gulf. Right? He used that incident to justify bombing of North Vietnam, which he was told by Westmoreland, by McNamara, and the other hawks in his administration that this would destroy the supply lines, 
from North Vietnam down to South Vietnam, destroy the supply lines for the Viet Cong. It didn't, had no effect whatsoever. You'd build, you destroy a bridge. Three days later, the bridge was built, rebuilt. Is, is that just, that's just bad information though from his agencies or whoever gave him that info? Kind of like the Bay of Pigs. They told Kennedy that if he launched air support, um, that they would have this win. And that was a big failure that caused the firing of Alan Dulles and a couple other members. The CIA, notorious for that. The CIA becomes heavily involved. I'm sure you've been told this before by other guests. Beginning with the over, to me, and I'm sure others would concur, the sinister side of overthrowing governments opposed to the United States and its vision of the world regime change to me began with the overthrow of Mossadegh in what 53 in Iran under Alan Dulles and going forward that became the pretty standard policy of the CIA all the way through I would say the overthrow of Salvatore Allende in 1973 in Chile because he was a Marxist. That was Nixon. And that had been the pretty stand, pretty much a standard policy. You look at Diem, the murdering, murdering of Diem and his entire family. Now, Diem was no saint. Was horrible. I mean, I would throw the murder of uh, Dag Hammarskjöld up there, too, or his death, Dag Hammarskjöld's death the UN investigated as a thing of Alan Dulles. And then, honestly, I've listened to Hale Boggs in 71 calling out J. Edgar Hoover. I would toss his name up there on the board, too, and his plane went missing over Alaska. Oh, yeah. That's course. why I try and boil it down from, like, I hate the words hard right and hard left because I go, it separates us farther as people. If you look at this from, like, an, I think with the hindsight we have now— you look at these government agencies and you start going, what who, what side are you guys on? Like, right. you guys are out there for your I think the Kennedy and Nixon debate is the most interesting to me because mm -hmm. you really saw someone, I think, era in a new way of thinking, yeah. a new way of talking about things. Like, America isn't the America that could recognize itself from two decades ago. Like, shit, nobody heard that. What, is, what are you talking about? And then you get this kind of like, I wouldn't say mindset change. Obviously, Kennedy died, so we don't know what could have been fulfilled. But you really start seeing people start voicing their opinions. I mean, I'm not for people getting infiltrated by cops when they're doing protests and sit-ins, all because the government goes, we got to deal with this problem and get rid of it. That's a mentality that has been long cooking. And it's interesting that we really see that with the counterculture. And that's why a lot of like I've heard people have regrets about some of the counterculture stuff. And I was like, you guys were just you guys didn't have the full knowledge that we do now about what they were doing to stop you. No, no, there was no social media. Had there been social media in the 60s like it is today. What it tweeted it out. <laughs> oh, man, tweet, yeah, you would have been instantaneous. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned about infiltration and such. I promise you, and I'm sure I'd have support for this. Had you had, if that was a leftist demonstration on, can I say January 6th? No. Just, just say the Jan 5 plus 1. That's fine. Okay. January Five plus one. That had been 
say, 1968 or 69, Richard Nixon would not have hesitated to use whatever force was necessary. A hundred percent. You agree with that? But that did not occur on that on the day of that event. But had it been from the left, you would have used whatever force you needed to crush that. Oops, sorry. Yeah, with Nixon, I just noticed that when everything gets blamed on him for Watergate, and I'm not a defender. I don't think he should have been president. But I go, you're telling me there's nobody else involved. Nobody else was up to doing dirty shit back then. Like I've looked. Oh, of course of... they were. So that's the thing. It's like I don't like how like we don't even hear a peep about anybody else throughout the history books. Which I just go, of course, it seems like it's a targeted type thing. And I'm sure, yeah, he should have been out. But why are we not hearing about Hoover's involvement in any of this type of stuff? Why is other names not being called in? The CIA was during the church committee hearings. I mean, that stuff should be taught in history books, yet we don't even hear a peep about that. No wonder there's so many organizations that want to change and they were turned down or they were stopped. No, I agree. And I try to convey this to my students in, in 16 weeks, and it's hard to cram it all in. I got you. I'm about a year in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I try to, I try to, but, you know, it's, it's so far out of their frame of reference that they have a hard time understanding that. But you're 100% correct. I mean, if, not to defend Nixon. I never liked Nixon. Hell, Eisenhower hated Nixon. Um, and he was his vice president. Um, Nixon, if you look at that whole Watergate operation, those were Nixon's true believer, loyalist cadre of fanatics. The, the White House, the, the plumbers, right? And Ehrlichman and, and uh, Haldeman, they filtered everything before it got to Nixon. So, yes, Nixon did not know of the Watergate break-in. Didn't know anything about it. John Mitchell certainly did. He was head of creep, committed to reelect the president. He knew all about that operation, all the henchmen. Nixon didn't. And Nixon, you got to remember something else too about Nixon. That son of a gun was extremely not popular. But he had been, he was embraced finally by the majority of Americans by 72. And which makes, I mean, he would have won. The Democratic Party by 72 was totally polarized. And what? Your nominee is George McGovern, senator from South Dakota? I'm a Democrat. I loyal Democrats still am. And even in 72, I said, wait a minute, McGovern, this is all we have? That was the first election I got to vote because the age, I was already 21, and the age just changed then. Here's something else you probably didn't know. Um, or maybe you did know. 18-year-olds got the right to vote in 1972, right? You lowered the age, first time they got to vote. The majority of 18-year-olds, guess who they voted for in 1972? Nixon, because Nixon was visiting college campuses giving speeches. Precisely. And the I'm other reason you. when you <laughs> Yeah, I know you are. And when they were and the Democrats, we were so upset. We polled all these students after the election. Well, wait a minute. Why did you vote for Nixon? You're supposed to be young, idealistic, and liberal, and radical, and counterculture, and all this. 
And we, I, we voted for Nixon because my parents did. That was their response. Why did you vote for Nixon? My wife was a flaming liberal. Got the vote in 1972 for the first time. She was 18. She voted for Richard Nixon. Why? Oh, my parents voted for Republicans. I voted for Nixon. <laughs> That's insane. The counterculture had this unrealistic ideal that all American youth of the 60s were idealistic, liberal, radical kids. When all the polls show, and I'm sure other guests you've had on would confirm this, that the majority of college students in the 60s, yeah, I'm talking 60, 70, 80% on certain campuses, even higher, went to school, had nothing to do with any aspect of the counterculture, still believed in the American dream, a college education is going to get me there, my ticket to security, prosperity, stability, etc. You're talking maybe 20% of white college students, white, in the 60s, were actively involved in social justice causes, anti-war movement, pick one. I'm, and I'm being generous at 20%. There was a fascinating poll taken in 68, the height of the war, Vietnam War. Majority of college students came out saying that, yes, we believe the United States should maintain a presence in Vietnam. Majority of college students. So this, this mythology we've, we have about the 60s that Every student grew his hair long, smoked dope, sexual orgies, LSD, protested the Vietnam War. That's a myth. That's a myth. A huge myth. Those poor students at Kent, at Kent State, the five that were murdered by the National Guard, three of them were just walking to class. Yeah. Tragic. It's... um. I know about a lot of people didn't really like they didn't they weren't against the Vietnam War as much as the mythos kind of says there were people that were obviously and John Lennon we know speaks out publicly or spoke out publicly about it but there was a lot of people that were in support of it but I also think it's because of how much they ramped up the the, uh, the fear of communism you know that communistic threat and I, th I forgot who I was talking oh it was Greg Polgrain who studied Dag Hammarskjöld and wrote a book about Alan Dulles in Indonesia and everything like that. Okay. Um, so he talks about it when there's a, a letter that went back and forth where Alan Dulles was talking about there's communists over here in Indonesia and we have to go over there and spread democracy or go save the people. And someone had just written back like, wait, communism? Is there another form of it? And like the guy goes, yeah, this is communism too. And it's kind of like they just broad brushed it and you start realizing it's just anything that they either wanted or they just didn't care for. And they were just like, we're going to have to brush this as communism so people can be afraid of what we've already ramped them up. Then it's a good way to start your operations and protocols. I mean, if you call hippies commies or communists, then everyone's going to start hating hippies or being afraid of them. Precisely. And that was the quick trope that was used in the 60s to label all the hippies communists but more importantly to, to label the student activists the radicals the anti-war protesters civil rights workers white civil rights workers even though mlk was labeled as a, a communist by hoover for christ's sake i mean it's insane right 
Yeah, you're right. And that's to me, I, I tell my students that one of the flaws of it, when you look at Cold War policy, U.S. Cold War policy, beginning with Truman, through Nixon, really, right? You, every one of those presidents in varying degrees will do precisely what you just said. Exploit Americans' hysterical fear of communism, right? If McCarthy taught us, McCarthyism taught us anything, that's the lesson. I mean, McCarthy, would have, there never would have been a Joseph McCarthy had you not already had the seeds of communist hysteria already planted in the American mind, not by some far-right Looney Tunes. I mean, those guys have always been here with us since the 20s. But by Harry Truman himself, President Harry Truman, who was considered one of the top 10 presidents in U.S. history, and deservedly so, for a variety of reasons. But Truman's the one who opened that door, which is hard for good old liberals to accept, but when, when, when liberals look in the mirror like myself, yes, as an historian, we have to recognize that truth about Truman. Right? With, he uses whatever he can to build his policy. He hate, And the other thing that's important, and I'm sure... I, I don't think it's a, his fault, though. Like, I'm not a leftist or anything. I don't... Like I said, I'm a deep state guy. It just, it keeps me out of the left-right crap. I just, just so much sure, easier no, to live life that way. Um, sure. But uh, when you look at what like something you could rationalize with Truman is, I think that that like that little government circle. It's the only reason I really kind of like look at Nixon a little bit differently. Is like he was there with Eisenhower, and I go even if you're just briefly and you're not really connected to like being the president or anything. But if you're vice president or something, you understand how that political climate works. You know how the mindset works. You do exactly what Lyndon Johnson did, where he had blackmail on people, much like J. Edgar Hoover did. And I was like, when you understand your politics like that, the way you see people make decisions that might look bad to their political party or might look like this, I kind of go, isn't that kind of how it runs? Like blackmailing's not good, but people have to do it to get their things across. And once you understand the political climate like that, you go, we need to talk about democracy again. Like, how do we get there? And that's like when maybe it's the illusion of democracy. Maybe we're just in that capitalist mentality and that's how everything's got to work you know and that's why i believe like the deep state stuff because you really examine it from that perspective everything makes a little bit more sense you know we spend too much time blaming certain individuals and i just go it's this is like an entity thing this is like our agencies this is our whole foundation i mean if hoover's the fbi director for however many years and alan oh, Dulles is the cia director for how many years then they've bled and they've created their own image into these agencies and that's the mentality they're all running by which is a problem of course it's a huge problem if you look at the heads of the cia cia for example dulles's impact is probably more significant than most fucking monumental man yeah as far as I, yeah i couldn't agree with you more he really takes the cia to a whole different stratosphere in its outlook on the Cold War, its policies, etc. And even though JFK gets rid of Dulles after the Bay of Pigs, the fact that he carried Dulles over into his administration speaks volumes. 
Yeah, it's weird. Alan Dulles voted for JFK rather than Richard Nixon. So a Republican voted for a Democrat. And not only that, Alan Dulles wrote Kennedy's speeches in his debates versus Nixon. Mm -hmm. And I think Kennedy did that because he also brought on Hoover. You get you get those people on your side. The whole agencies that they command follow you because they had so much credit and so much water, which is I mean, he ended up firing Dulles, but then he was hired to investigate K Kennedy's uh, death, which is a little bit of like a fox investigating the chicken coop. <laughs> exactly, man. Like, whoa. <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, you got to remember something else about that Republican establishment, which Eisenhower is part of. Dulles, those East Coast Republican establishment people, right? They never liked Nixon. First of all, Nixon was from California. He was a, a, a nouveau riche parvenu in many ways. He, the only reason Eisenhower took Nixon as his vice president was to, to appeal to the younger elements within the Republican Party, right? Because Eisenhower was already very old. Not really, but he was uh, by more standards. And you had that West Coast, right, where the Republican Party was not yet as strong as it is now. Not in the West Coast, but in the West. And so that's why he took Nixon. But the old Eastern establishment, which both Dulles, both John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles were part of, they hated Nixon. And that's to, so it's no surprise that they would vote for Kennedy. You got to remember something else, too, I'm sure, which I'm sure your other guests have reiterated. Nixon, Kennedy was, it starts out as a hardline cold warrior. Now, whether or not he personally believed that, or is it for political consumption or political gain, I don't know. But, for example, Kennedy lies about the missile gap to justify increased defense spending. And the missile gap was in U.S. favor, not the Soviets. <laughs> so, JFK, it's not until the missile crisis, Cuban missile crisis, JFK realized, oh, my God, our policies have brought us to the point of potential Armageddon. Yeah. You know, in many ways, we forced us. Every time we would, I mean, think of it. We have the atomic bomb. The Soviets get the bomb by 49. We developed the hydrogen bomb. That's Truman's during Truman's administration. The Soviets tit for tat. And you have one of the most dangerous arms races ever in the history of humanity. And so I'd rather my kids be red than dead is the question. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's insane. It's just insane. insane. I, want, I want to ask about the Haight Ashbury clinics. Sure. Could you break those down for me, like exactly what they were? I know they're in San Francisco and. Right. There's a connection with Manson there where I, I don't know. We can get into that probably at some point. Um, but I want to talk about Joy on West because I do know about him from my Kennedy research because Tucker Carlson happened to say this. And I don't ever listen to him, but people had came to me at work and they go, wait, what you were saying was true. I had been saying this months before he had talked about Joy on West visiting Jack Ruby. Now, I know about Joy on West because there's letters that you can find in the archives, and it took a while, but they were talking about dressing up as hippies and drugging random people at these Haight-Ashbury clinics. So that's where I know about the Haight-Ashbury clinics. We can get into this and we can talk about it more, but I want to know what you learned about the Haight-Ashbury clinics, if you know about any of these things that I've mentioned, and hopefully you know, I can understand it more. 
Yeah, only in a, in a peripheral sense about what you just said. But if you look at the, the first Haight-Ashbury Clinic with, with David Smith, right? He was genuine, as far as I'm concerned. All the archival things I've read and such about the Haight-Ashbury, the original Haight-Ashbury with, with, with Smith, right? He's legitimate. I think he, and then you have the proliferation of other clinics. What exactly were they? Just hippie brothel things or? No, there was an attempt by that. Even before the summer of love, even before summer of 67, you had a, already the hate had been inundated by thousands of young people. Uh, you know, Scott McKenzie's song, you know, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. That's really a trite song, but they were drawn to that, the hate. And remember, you got to remember something else, too, about San Francisco, which I'm sure you probably already know. San Francisco has always been a very open, tolerant city. I mean, ever since, really, it's founding in the 18th, during the cold rush, for God's sake. It's always been outre in many ways, still is. Um. Our oldest daughter lives there. She's a public librarian at the San Francisco Public Library. She's been there forever. And it's always been this kind of city. And so when you have this massive influx, even before the summer of love, city officials, right, whether it's the mayor, the board of supervisors, local residents, were very concerned that the city could not absorb. Because San Francisco is a very small city. It's seven miles. That's it, right? You could walk it in one day. My daughter has. And they were very concerned that the city could not absorb, let alone deal with all the problems that this massive influx of humanity would bring. And so guys like Smith and others said, my God, what's going to happen medically to all these kids? Because a lot of them are going to be overdose on drugs. And such, thank you. And so that's how the clinic got started. Is this this this, this genuine human concern for the well-being, the physical well-being of all these poor wayward kids, whether or not they're gonna overdose on drugs or what kind of material disease they'll get, or God knows. And so that's why you have that clinic. And it's a free, it was a free, free clinic and it still is a free clinic, right? There. It's still in operation. Now, Smith's long retired, but um, that's how it got started, was his concern. And then you had the proliferation of other clinics. Now, as you mentioned, did these, were these clinics used to, you know, pump these kids full of drugs and make them, you know, turn them loose in the streets to reinforce the stereotype that all hippies were these drug-crazed individuals a la Charles Manson did spend some time in the hate, right? Yeah. He first got it. He started to gather his cult, his female cult, in the city at 67, 68. You're not going to like my take on Manson, just letting you know that now. No, it's okay. 
a lot of people have a very different take on Manson. I don't I don't think like I think he should have been locked up, but I don't agree the process of how he should have been locked up. Um, in what sense? That Vincent Bugilosi, which has come out now, they committed perjury in the Manson trial. They put a prosecutor on the defendant's team. That's not a right to a fair trial. As a citizen, you get that. Um, sure. That's what I stand by. I mean, I think it, it would have came out in court normally that he would have been convicted. But it's also, is it crazy? I mean, is it, do you get convicted for being crazy? Like they could have got him on prostitution charges. They could have got him on drug charges. They could have got him on anything. But it like the murders happen and they get that. I was like, that was like the the weakest thing you could have grabbed him with because he wasn't there at the crime. You're trying to get him a convincing of things. I mean, like I said, I've talked to many people on the Manson murders, specifically Brad Schweiber is a good example. He went through the San Francisco police records and talked to many of the cops there. And he they, they're all saying that they were told on higher orders to stand down. Well, who the hell's the higher order? And you have them there. You could charge them on anything. So my whole thing is... As an American citizen, I go, anybody has a right to a fair trial, and the truth comes out that way. But also with how lawyers work, it's all about kind of winning. So it's like I would just want to get my way and get the winning stuff, so I'm not going to look at the evidence that might be against me. You know what I mean? Like there's there's this the mentality out there, which I don't know. I know people say that's a how are you defending Manson? I'm like, look, I've seen plenty of interviews of the guy. He's fucking nuts. I'm not going to lie. Of course he's not going to lie But I also – but believe in someone's right to a fair trial on anything like that. I think that's one thing we have to establish in a democracy. Oh, without question, that's paramount. I'm, you could no debate from most of your guests, I'm sure. I'll, say, I'll take it a step further, Manson. Manson became the ultimate dangerous hippie. You had been building a case within the mainstream media, within mainstream America that the hippie movement this was the inevitable end the result of the hippie movement the emergence of murderers like Manson and so if you look at the hippie movement after the Manson murders are revealed and, and I say Manson murders because Manson didn't commit any of the murders right as you know also it's all his his little cult and if you go back and read, whether it's Time or New, all the mainstream media publications, they all say, aha, this is, and, and quote, experts on the student, the student revolt, right? Social scientists, social psychologists, et cetera, all say, aha, this is the end result of this counterculture or this particular affinity group of the counterculture. It, this, their, their drug usage was going to lead to the inevitable end of mass murder and all kinds of horrible, sinister. Good old Helter Skelter. Precisely. Very good. Exactly. Helter Skelter. Right? And that's not at all. Me and you could easily chat about this over a couple beers. I'm better than your students, probably. <laughs> yeah, a lot better. They don't even know what Helter Skelter White Album is all about. <laughs> but, you know, and the Beatles weren't singing about that at all. That's the way Manson interpreted it. But that's but the point. But I think the larger issue with Manson is you want to bring a quick end, death knell to the counterculture, so to speak, you got a guy like Manson. You describe him as a hippie, run amok, all of his cult on drugs. I mean, he did drugs and all this. And so there it is. And if you get the counterculture, it just craters 
you, well, the you summer have, of 60. You have proof of the Operation Midnight Climax. That's documented, and everyone can go look up, read it, and see about the drugging at the Haight-Ashbury clinics. That only makes more sense that he, they're told on higher orders to stand down and not arrest Manson. Even when he was on probation or parole or whatever, probation was, was he was able to go survey land. And even the judge said, what the hell is going on here? And stop that. But that's a weird thing where I go, if you really want someone to be synonymous with the the movement of the counterculture 60s and summer of love and all that, and it's Manson, that's a great way for you to be able to take down the whole damn movement to where history only remembers the Manson stuff. And that really discredits all of what happened. And like that's a great government tactic. And you got to think about the long game on that one. Yeah, of course. I put a lot of weight into that. No, no, I do too. I, I think that's one of the, that was what they, everyone who was opposed to the youth rebellion in the sixties, this is what you're going to latch on to, like you just said, to discredit the whole sixties youth rebellion, whether it's the radicals, the student, the politicos, the student protesters, or the hip quote hippies. Manson represents the kind of crescendo. And then you also got to look at something. He's not even a hippie, though. He's like a cult leader. That's different. That's exactly. Different. He's not. No. He just wrapped himself in that mantle, that garb to attract. If you look at all his little, his little cult women, they were all these hate Ashbury individuals I talked about, all drifted into the hate summer of love. And you, know, and you see that with the hippie movements. There's like hippies and then there's the people that go, we're going to be naked all the time. And it's like so even some of the hippie people were like, I don't think this is for me. Like that was their drawing line. Like you can take the clothes off and still be considered a hippie. You know, you you still embrace that title. Your clothes don't make that. But there was this mentality out there that like, oh, these are all people that just want to have sex with everybody. It's like, I'm sure there's some, but it's not every single one. Some people were standing for something that they believed in. No. And that's and I think that's a very important distinction just made because that's going to lead lead directly to quote, genuine hippies. Interpret that any way you want. Are going to be fed up with that kind of stereotyping and that's what's going to be the impetus in the late 60s, early 70s for the emergence or re-emergence of the communes in U.S. history. Because real hippies are going to flee those urban areas and say, my God, this is these are cesspools. And if you look at the founding of like Morningstar out Northern California or uh, Gaskin's farm in Tennessee, I wrote an article about the farm in Tennessee uh, several years ago for the Tennessee Historical Quarterly. If you're interested in, in, in history of a commune, take a look at that article. And there's other books written. Uh, Timothy Miller wrote a great book on the communes in the 90s. Fabulous. And we all agree as 60s historians that the real driving impetus for the reemergence of the communes in U.S. history was this, one of the most important factors was this sense of just disgust, alienation from the urban hippie scene that had become cesspools, drugs and such. They said, no, we're going to go find a way back to, to the country, escape all this. And be left alone to pursue our our vision, our utopia. And I think if you look at the the, at the majority of communards, the founders as well as the those who went to the communes, 
this is what this is what drove them there. Many of them, not all. So, what are your what are your thoughts on the history of the counterculture? I mean, obviously, we're still seeing a lot of media representation of it in the probably the most mythical way. Um, when it comes to just people lo- like having sex all the time and doing drugs and all this, and it's been kind of synonymized with the Grateful Dead, which honestly I don't get the hype behind the Grateful Dead. Sorry if that offends you. Um, no, I'm not no. a not a big guy on the Grateful Dead, but no, I, neither I, am I. I was there. <laughs> I wonder about the history of what it's going to be because even with media, if you talk about like the swinging '60s or the swinging '70s, look at like the UK representations, like Austin Powers. Now I get that's a comedic kind of example obviously but they make it really hyped up to where kids of a younger generation like myself without diving into the history and speaking with all the people i've spoken to on these subjects you're having a really different perspective than learning what maybe the actual history is and then you can get drawn in by some of that really interesting stuff like the manson stuff and all that but that will deter you from wanting to really investigate the true culture of it so as a history teacher and just someone that is interested in the history and writing books about it do you think that there's going to be a change or shift in that narrative? I mean, how much content can you put out there besides like everyone, even Hollywood, really glamoring it up? Yeah, no. And I think most historians of my generation, right, who were around then, look back and we try to change the narrative to present as accurate a picture of the 60s counterculture, the broad spectrum of it. That's at least that's what I try to do. And I'm sure others do as well, that it was much deeper, much more profound, much more complex than simply the, the triad that you mentioned earlier of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That, all of that, most of the image that carried through, even linger today, even linger today, even amongst my peers in my generation, is this very stereotypical, trite image of the counterculture as just these self-indulgent, hedonist, spoiled white, middle-class suburban kids who went on a lark for a few years, explored every possible viscerogenic vice they possibly could, and eventually went home, went back. Yeah, that's true for some. That's definitely true for a lot of them. Something I mentioned that you mentioned earlier about the hate. When if you went up to the hate in the 60s, 67, 68, 69, it's pretty much over. But in those halcyon years, 67, 68, you had what a lot of what historians and even contemporaries call plastic hippies, weekend hippies. You know, white kids from suburbia, straight as hell, would dress themselves in hippie guard, garb and go up to the hate and for a weekend pretend they were hippies and immerse themselves in every vice that hippiedom supposedly had and then went back home to suburbia, back to college in their little button-down Oxford shoot, shirts and penny loafers to college. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of people like that. A lot of them. A lot of them. I was in undergraduate college out there in the the 60s, early 70s. And I remember going up in high school, going up there, my buddies and I, and all we cared about was the music. 
and their music was fabulous. And you'd have the Grateful Dead and others giving free concerts at Goldgate Park, or we'd go to the Avalon Ballroom. Or the- oh, do you think Timothy Leary was a helper hurt to the whole movement? Oh, he was a definitely a hurt. Okay. Huge hurt. I've heard that from a couple of people who are like studying psychedelics in Canada and stuff like that. And they mentioned the history of like psychedelics and the bad history it has and not just government usage, but Timothy Leary. It's an interesting guy. I think, you know, there's something going on with him, but I think he definitely the whole, oh, set and setting was okay. But then he was giving it out like to everybody. I was like, hang on a second. You got to like moderate, give people some guidance more than just set and setting. Yeah, no, Leary was something. He was a self-promotion self-promoting con artist he's the music man of lsd remember that music movie movie the music man yeah right that, that's what leary was no one in retrospect historians don't you take him seriously but you don't take him seriously because his message was so bogus it was self-promotional do you think that when it comes to my generation, I mean, do you see some similarities with a lot of the counterculture or still this kind of rise? I mean, obviously, we still have independent press. It's a little bit easier now or independent media outlets. But I feel like you now you get more of a wide scale view. And my generation is a very activist generation, which I don't think is too far off from other younger generations that were experiencing things in different times. Um It's just about getting them to care about things in the past. We're more focused on the future than anything what what you could learn from the past exactly yeah stakes in the future my generation just cares so much about the future they don't even want to look at the past and i'm like guys the past is going to be the best predictor of the future here yes in in many areas yes i mean it, the environmental concerns that we have magnified greatly and real the first awareness began with the 60s the environmental movement, ecology, all that. There were warning signs then. And now those warning signs of global warming and such have become very real. Now, did we even think about that? Was that term even used in the 60s? Not to my knowledge. Global warming, no. But concerns about the despoliation of the environment became a very important concern of my generation of, of the 60s when to me it's one of the more positive legacies a great greater awareness of the planet and how humanity is despoiling it destroying it in many areas so that's a concern you mentioned activism i think you have increasing numbers of younger people particularly i'd say people in the 20s and the 30s, not so much in their 40s or 50s, but 20s and 30s, because they're aware of global warming and other very important issues, are becoming more actively involved in a variety of different crusades and campaigns, whether they're political, environmental, social change, social justice causes. And I think that's very important. To, to keep moving forward as a nation, as a, as a, as a people, as a, as, a, as a global people. The, the thing I worry about, though, with younger people, when I see this in my students, is that they, they have become, over the last 40 years of my college teaching experience, less and less 
go globally aware. I remember when I first started in the 80s, early 80s, students were much more globally aware, much more worldly aware, both at home and abroad. And I see that diminishing as each generation of students go by. And that concerns me a lot. Not only as a historian, but as a citizen, as a teacher. I think that concerns me. But I see that awareness becoming more and more important to younger people in their 20s, in their 30s. If you look at the leaders of these global movements, global awareness movements, for lack of a better term, these are people your age and a little bit older, which is great. So that's a good, good sign for me as far as an old geese. That's good. I have a lot of faith in your generation, people in their 20s and 30s. I'm a bit of a pessimist. My, huh? I'm a bit of a You're pessimist. You're a pessimist? No, I, I see hope. I see hope. I see hope in you, your generation. Don't see much hope with people in their 40s or 50s. <laughs> 20s and 30s. To me, I don't trust anybody under 50. <laughs> over 50. Over 50, excuse me. Or, well, I don't trust anybody over 40. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Trust people in their 20s and 30s. Our cliche was, don't trust anybody under, under 30, no. I, I don't trust anybody over 40. Over, not under 40. Well, well, John, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, man. I'm glad we finally got to get this in the books there. Um, but is there a place where people can find your books and any other links you'd like to promote? I can make sure to link in the description. But if you know any offhand you'd like to say to the people listening. Sure. If you're interested in what I've talked about today, go to Amazon.com. Buy my book, The Hippies in 1960s History. If you're interested in some of the articles I've written about student activism, particularly here in Texas, you can go to Southwestern Historical Quarterly site. Click on that and put my name in and the articles will come up. And I'll link any links that I find in the description for people to be able to click and listen to. Um, but thank you so much, John, for uh, thank you. giving me the time and talking about some of the counterculture and some other areas with me. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.